Hello, everyone. My name is Josh, and I am the host of this podcast. Welcome to this episode of Indubitably. Just kidding. I am not Josh, but I am going to be moderating today's live debate on the topic government should establish quotas for women in elected offices. My name is actually Angela Nguyen, and I have been public speaking for six years and debating for three. Currently, I'm also a university student studying American politics and microbiology. In general, I love learning more about topics ranging from women's rights to biofilms. But when I'm not debating or studying, you can find me poorly singing at the top of my lungs, being a chaotic evil tiefling in D&D campaigns, or annoying my insanely hyper dog, Chonky. Now, before I get started, I'll give you a brief overview of how our debate will be formatted. In the first half, we will start with one speaker from each side presenting their case in a six-minute speech, followed by a period of cross-examination, or what I like to call battle, where they will get to question each other directly. Then, the second speaker for each side will repeat the process. During these speeches, you will hear interjections from the opposite side called points of information. This is an opportunity to ask the speaker questions or challenge them on statements as they're being made. Defending the topic today will be your regular host, Josh, who you all know, but what you might not know yet is that Josh actually works in the political realm, running campaigns at all levels of government, having served as campaign director in congressional, state senate, county supervisor, and city council races. Joining Josh on the government side of this motion will be Thomas. Thomas Crombie is a recovering collegiate debater with a love of social justice and public health. He combined these interests with his love of public speaking to become an educator on LGBTQIA issues with an emphasis on trans-affirming healthcare and mental health care topics. When Thomas isn't spreading the gay agenda, he's probably at home playing with his special needs cat and striving to be a traitor to the patriarchy, as we all are. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you. I am excited to be here, especially uh, arguing um, on the correct side of this debate. We're excited to have you. On the opposition side, will be your other regular host, Kelly, alongside Chris Richter. Kelly says she is excited to oppose this motion out of A, a principled opposition to gender essentialism, which I'm sure we'll hear more about in her speeches, as well as B, a general enjoyment of defeating Josh in rhetorical battle, which is always fun to watch. Next, we have Chris, who is a lawyer living near Portland, Oregon with his wife and daughter. A former competitor himself, Chris was one half of the winning team of the 2002 NPDA National Championships while he attended the University of Alaska Anchorage. A major fan of all things cinematic, he is especially knowledgeable about Star Wars and pre-COVID, often showed off his skills in local pub quizzes. Recently, he coached his daughter's soccer team, so our debate today should be a piece of cake compared to wrangling a dozen five-year-olds. So, without any further ado, I would like to call on our first speaker, Josh, to open up this debate for us. Thank you, Angelin. I want to start this debate by rewinding time a couple of years and moving us to the state of Alabama, which 
let's be real, is more like rewinding time a couple of decades. In Alabama's state Senate in 2019, 25 white men passed a law mandating an almost blanket ban on abortion, the strictest in the United States. The four female senators in Alabama spoke against and voted against the bill with their words falling on painfully deaf ears. Whatever your opinion on abortion is, to be honest, it's not really pertinent to this debate. But the idea that laws can be passed on that issue, or really any issue, without the ability for half of the people who will be subject to that law to have meaningful involvement in its construction and subsequent decision on whether or not to pass it is absolutely ridiculous. Thomas and I think that situations like this completely undermine the legitimacy of the idea of democracy in any form, and throughout this debate, think that we can convince you of the same. So, How would we change the status quo to rectify this problem? In specific, how would we establish quotas for women in elected offices? Let's start with our goal, which is reaching the point where at least 50% of elected officials in every governmental body around the world are non-male identifying, looking to provide the diversity that is lacking in the current male-dominated system. We aren't super interested in discussing the minutiae of exactly what the policies that get us to this point will look like considering how very different political systems globally are, but it would probably include things like enforcing quotas on the nominations for political parties, reserving seats for non-male candidates, or only providing non-male options in certain districts in future elections, etc. We're perfectly open to other ideas, just keeping the goal in mind of reaching at least 50% representation of non-male identifying individuals in government. What all of these approaches have in common, and I think is the most important decision to be had in this debate, is the trade-off that we're looking to make. And that is the benefits of representation that we access versus the principle of pure democracy that we acknowledge we are attacking, at least at first glance. By establishing any type of quota, we're potentially taking away the rights of people to vote for who they would have wanted to. If there's a voter out there that has a real, mm, like hard on, hopefully figuratively, For a male candidate in a district where it's mandated that they're only offered women as options, we recognize we're infringing on their democratic right. But during this speech and the rest of the government side, Thomas and I are going to prove to you two fundamental things. Firstly, the real world practical benefits that stem from increased representation outweigh this principle of democracy. And secondly, the idea that pure democracy even exists in the status quo is an absolute farce. And as strange as it might seem at first, we actually achieve a more democratic system on our side. So in this speech, let's examine the benefits that we garner from living in a world where governments reflect an equitable gender balance. And before I get to that, I think Kelly has a question. Is it your contention that the only way to represent a group is to actually be a part of that group? Um, We think that in many cases that obviously there's going to be a connection between increased ability to represent the group and being part of the group. It's not mandatory but it's certainly helpful. And when we look at it on scale, i.e. just the lack of representation that exists, we'd think that it would be necessary. So what's the first benefit that we see from implementing a quota like this? We think the premier shortcoming of the status quo is the institutional ignorance around issues that impact non-male constituents. I started this speech by talking about Alabama's abortion legislation. And A, this is hardly the only place where men have nearly complete control in deciding what women are and are not allowed to do with their bodies. We're looking at you, Texas. And B, abortion is hardly the only issue that disproportionately affects women, and yet policies constructed almost exclusively by men. 
issues in the workplace, from sexual harassment to pay gaps to maternity leave to lack of respect or institutional support around caregiving to trans issues revolving around legal recognitions and protections to period poverty and stigmas. Uh, Kelly might suggest that men can have some sort of insight into these issues. We don't think that would be the case most of the time. These are issues that can literally define the lives of millions of people in the United States, billions of people around the world, like over half of the fucking people, right? And governments are comprised disproportionately of men who have literally no experience with any of these things and yet are deciding on laws governing how we deal with them. More often than not, these laws are not just ineffective in addressing these problems, but oftentimes rooted in a discriminatory worldviews that actively propagate harmful stereotypes and make things even worse. That is if they even choose to address these issues at all. Most of the time, they're busy prioritizing legislation around things that they think are important, like how much money should we give the military, whether or not sports teams are required to play the national anthem, or criminalizing homeless camping, ironically punishing it with a $500 fine looking at you again, Texas. Now, you can go on the opposition side and say that the placing of women into office through a quota system is going to be tokenistic, undermine their credibility, whatever. But the benefits that every single constituent who has to deal with these issues gain are not tokenistic and are not symbolic. They are very real and oftentimes life-changing. In order for representative democracy to work, it has to be, wait for it, representative. And half of the population in this world have never lived under the control of a government that even remotely resembles the constituents whose lives are entrusted to it. Thomas and I prefer function over form. And if we can achieve functional democratic systems that represent and protect the interests and lives of those who live within them, we are perfectly happy to meddle with the form and introduce the quotas that can guarantee us a better quality of life across the board. Thank you so much, Josh, for that speech. And now to open up the case for the opposition side, I'd like to welcome Kelly. It was really nice to hear an attempt at pre-buttle for everything I'm going to say. It's like, you read my mind. That's fun. What I'm going to first do is talk a little bit about what we heard from the proposition. And then I'm going to go over some of the exact same things that they expected me to. Democracy, gender essentialism, and tokenism. What a surprise. Okay. So let's talk about what we heard from from the proposition today about the non-male identified people. We don't actually hear any indication of what kind of non-male people we're talking about. There are people who are not male who are conservative. There are people who are not male who are racist. There are people who are not male who are not representative of people like me. So I don't really think that we're operating from a point of getting any guarantees from the proposition here. They essentially accept the fact that they are diminishing democracy for the uh, ultimate goal of representation, but then they don't tell us how they guarantee representation. They boil it down to characteristics based on um, gender identity alone, which we don't think actually is representative. And then when we talk about their uh, advantage here about the uh, ignorance of people deciding issues who are not representative of those groups, we believe that society is better served when it evolves to that realization organically instead of begrudgingly. Eventually, men did give women the vote. Took them a while, but they did. And that was a conclusion that they made of their own volition rather than being forced into it by a policy such as this. Furthermore, they don't give us any qualifiers for why gender and not things like race or other characteristics. So I'd really like to hear some justification for how they think they're actually being representative here. Okay, let's talk about what I have to say. First, on the issue of democracy, um, it is destroying the idea that we have any sense of a free choice in democracy or meritocracy when we're looking at forcing there to be a gender quota. Now, they're going to tell you 
that there already is a lack of free choice and the there is a myth of meritocracy when it comes to elected office. But that's like saying, well, there's a kitchen fire, but we should just let it burn the whole house down. We think that we shouldn't slide into a less democratic system than we currently have for the sake of reported representation when we know that ultimately people are best served by being able to make decisions fully and freely, and this would diminish that capacity for people in an otherwise democratic society. Secondly, let's talk about gender essentialism, which I do not have enough time to talk about in full, but I'll get to the best that I can. (laughs) This is a principle that has found its way into feminism and the Church of Latter-day Saints, by the way, um, that maleness or gender or any of these things are fixed, uniform, and intrinsic to people based on, well, predominantly biological sex, but I think that gender identity falls under this as well. Um, It undermines a lot of the principles of what men actually are by casting them as this uniform group that has no nuance within it to actually assist people who are not men. Uh, We do know that there are men who are actually not terrible for women. I can't believe I'm admitting to that, but it's true. So this undermines the concepts of allyship and the fact that People in privilege can weaponize their privilege to fight against things like the patriarchy. If men are just so terrible that they could never represent anybody who are not men in any issue, then the actual ability of them to be seen as legitimate allies for people who are not identified as men is completely undermined at a government level, which has a societal impact. I don't think that the purported representation benefits that you get out of this are worth it when we cast aspersions upon the gender of male as a whole. Uh, Some of them are okay, I've heard. Let's talk about tokenism and how this hurts women and non-male identified genders as well. There's a very big perception when you have a quota such as this that the people who are put into office as a result of the quota could not have done it on their own. And I mean, that's essentially the case. Like they could not do it on their own, but for factors other than what I think we're being instructed to believe by the proposition here. Ultimately, there are so many societal barriers that are not just the fact that there hasn't been a government mandate to put non-men into government that are barriers to people like women accessing political office and power. But what happens when you put women into office and you put non-men into office who otherwise couldn't have gotten there, you see an increased amount of resentment from the non-ally men, which there are still going to be plenty of, and for the unearned power and privilege that these women and non-men folk will have. And the increased amount of animosity can create a lot of political fallout, a lot of interpersonal fallout, and potentially even violent fallout. But furthermore, their credibility will be very much undermined in government because they will be perceived as weak to the point where they could not have done this on their own. So therefore their presence in these spaces is not actually legitimate. Even the women who would have been there, the women and non-men who would have been there had there not been a quota at all in the first place are all going to be presumed to have been in there because of the quota. That may not be true, but that is going to be the perception, which means their voice will count for less in terms of the credibility that they possess when engaging in these political discussions, the bills they propose, and so on. Furthermore, this creates an opportunity for other areas where there are no gender quotas to be seen for what they really are and show that there is an artificial power for women in government that does not exist in places like Fortune 500 companies, which will further 
reemphasize that there is a quote unquote weakness of non-male genders because they could not meet that same number without a quota being in place. It is for all those reasons that we think this undermines the very principles that the proposition is trying to advocate today. And we think that it is another tool of the patriarchy, just like men themselves. We oppose. Thank you, Kelly. Now we will have a period of battle or cross-examination where we will start by Josh questioning Kelly and then switch halfway through to give her the chance to return the favor. All right, Kelly. So you you mentioned early in your speech that there are non-male individuals who don't represent all non-male individuals, talking about varying political views. The people we get in office might not necessarily fully represent you, for example. Two questions. Don't you think that a non-male identifying person would more closely resemble another non-male identifying person rather than a man, especially on issues centered around gender? If you believe that gender is that fundamental of a force on whether or not they're going to be able to make good decisions, and I don't believe that's the case. Mm. I just think it's hard for men to legislate about periods, for example, when they haven't had one. But two, if what you're saying is true, don't you think that this is a reason why we need more women in government? So four women in Alabama versus 30 men, what are the odds that those four women represent? Don't those odds increase if four turns into 16? First of all, some men have had periods. Second of all, I think that this is a natural conclusion that can happen organically. And I do think that there should be women in office. And I think that that's a great idea. I just think it should happen of its own accord. Okay, moving on. So um, you've, you've mentioned that seeing women handed their office undermines their credibility. But women in government are already seen as weak and already ignored. But if 50% of a legislative body is female, whether men think they're weak or not, they will have to engage with them. Is that a question? Yeah. How do you feel about that? I think that there's enough, if you're talking about like the United States government with uh, caucusing and filibustering and things like that, that there are plenty of internal tools within the government to undermine women, even if they are 50% or more of the people in Congress. Okay. Questions for you. Why aren't we talking about something like race instead? Uh, We're fine to talk about race also, if that's the motion. We're fine for a similar scheme applied to race. Okay. Do you think that necessarily, again, the fundamental innate characteristics of people born in certain situations is a necessary precursor to their ability to speak on behalf of those groups or be an ally to those groups? Yeah, I think that you talking in necessities or black and white kind of misses the point that As we get closer and closer to sharing lived experiences and sharing worldviews, people are more representative versus less representative. So we're trying to create a world where governments are more representative people, even if that doesn't reach 100% representation. Okay. Why wouldn't society eventually get to this level eventually anyway on its own merit, its own steam? Uh, I mean, A, we haven't seen that happen. And you would have to show for us some sort of catalyst that will take something that's not happening right now and make it happen. And we think that a quota system could be that uh, catalyst. You don't think that it's actually happening? We've seen massive, massive developments in people, women especially, getting into office, getting into congressional seats that previously were held by men. You don't see that there's Mm. an avalanche coming of women's representation as it is? I don't. I mean, I don't want to preview my next speech early, but I got this cool fact that says 122 countries in the world have less than 25% representation currently of women in their legislative bodies. All right, cool. (laughs) We will now move on to hear from our second speakers, starting with Thomas for the government side. 
All right. So I want to start off by uh, issuing some rebuttals to some of the comments that Kelly made before I get into the um, substantive part of my speech, which will be uh, kind of expanding upon some of the harms that Josh listed in his in his opening speech um, and kind of really drive home the point of why our model better solves for the solution of more equal representation. Um, but first, I want to address a few points uh, that Kelly made. I mean, sure, there are individual men willing to betray the patriarchy. Um, that's awesome. And, um, you know, I would I would consider myself one of them. However, men as a group, as a homogenous group, have proven more interested in maintaining power over over marginalized genders and and women. So we don't see that as a whole, men uh, tend to be wanting to betray uh, the power that they currently hold, uh, socially speaking. Also, suffrage was brought up and as, as being given to women by men and what was uh, like violent battles on the part of women. And it was done piecemeal. So not all women were were uh, enfranchised at the same time. White women were given the vote first. And um, I think Native American uh, women were in, in America were given the vote last. And what we see across the world is that as, as late as 2015, Saudi Arabia finally enfranchised women to vote. So this has been an incredibly slow moving process because like men have intentionally excluded women and marginalized genders from participation in government and especially from the halls of power. And as Josh said, like, I, I am all in favor of, of quotas for race as well. That's just not the topic of, of this debate, though it would make for a, um, an interesting conversation. Regarding Kelly's points of quotas enable uh, of creating resentment or a lack of credibility or a lack of perceived credibility for women who and marginalized folks who get into these positions through a quota, that's currently exists in the status quo. Women we see in politics, especially in America, are constantly denigrated as, as being less able in their positions and are painted um, in the most sexist and misogynistic ways. In America, you have to look no further than any of the comments made about Hillary Clinton running in 2016. So we don't see that that is a unique harm uh, that our plan brings. What we do believe is that this will spark institutional change. And to paraphrase the orc Gothmog in the film version of Lord of the Rings Return of the King, the age of men is over, the time of marginalized genders has come. The time is up for the patriarchy, and our proposal would hasten its demise. Under the rule of men, we've seen immeasurable harm done to marginalized genders through the shaping of cultural narratives, legislation, bad science, and discrimination that has seeped into every aspect of life around the globe. I'd like to kind of expand upon these harms, and before I do that, I will take Kelly's point of interest. Okay, we agree that there are harms in the status quo when it comes to women in politics, but don't you see how the perception that they could not have gotten there on their own merit, whereas they currently do, would really undermine them to a point that it's even less favorable to be in politics as a woman altogether? I don't I don't see that as creating any unique harm. I, do, I mean, what Josh said in his, his speech is that we are willing to accept that the temporary harm of it being viewed as tokenistic in the fact that the long run, it will create actual real representation and it will give people of marginalized genders the uh, ability to show that they actually can lead, that they actually can be, you know, productive members of, you know, legislation. So we just we just aren't concerned with that because we just don't see that as as something that is uniquely bad. I would like to touch on a point that that Kelly made about representation and how our model is gender essentialist and is not actually true representation. And I would like to push back on that because 
representation, like study after study that has come out recently has shown that representation does matter and that people seeing themselves reflected in, in media, in, in politics, does actually make a difference. There's a great documentary out on uh, Netflix called This Changes Everything that talks about women's representation in film. And one of the points it drives home is that when women are portrayed positively in, in leading roles and in, in roles where they aren't subservient to men or in otherwise like more minor parts, young girls tend to like want to be involved in those things. Like after the Hunger Games came out, the amount of, of little girls and, and young women who wanted to take up archery increased a hundredfold. It, it became like a very popular sport, in fact, overtaking the interests from men. When the original CSI came out, the uh, the amount of women who wanted to sign up to be people working uh, on crime scene forensics increased hugely, and it became like many more women like flooded into that profession. So what we've seen it, just through like media representation is that it inspires people to to take on parts of their life that they might have not have been able to visualize otherwise. So I mean, in, in closing, basically, like to just you know kind of tie that up is. We believe that representation, uh, even if it's forced, actually will make a difference and that showing that there is a way that people of marginalized identities can exist in halls of power, can create this social change. And we feel that this will have a top-down effect on starting to dismantle those, those systems that the patriarchy has put in place. Because in, in each country, there's nothing, more, there's nothing more institutional than the law of the land. And that's, that's where legislation sits. For that reason, we are proud to propose this motion. Thank you, Thomas. And for the last speech of the first half of this debate, we have Chris on the opposition side. Uh, I'm going to start off by talking about a few of the points that Thomas just made and then move on to talk about a few of Kelly's arguments and why they still hold true despite the refutation. So first, in terms of discussing how the supposed plethora of studies about representation leading to better outcomes, I don't know that we're necessarily talking about the same sorts of things here. The question is, to what degree of influence are we willing to sacrifice elements of, of democracy and freedom of choice? And obviously, the, the, you know, that's a broader question. But in this particular case, the question then becomes, in terms of weighing the costs and benefits of any particular policy proposal, are there other solutions that would not cause the same amount of, of harms or problems? And in this case, I think that's a, it, it weaves in very nicely with Kelly's prior arguments about gender essentialism and tokenism. There are other ways to go about solving these supposed inherent problems without quotas. All the things basically that Thomas just mentioned, whether it's depicting people in areas of power on CSI or having, I'd love to give every little girl uh, a bow and arrow. Uh, might be dangerous at my house, but that's a non-undemocratic way to go about trying to solve this problem. So the fact is we can do all those things that will then result in the organic change that you're looking for. Because on the flip side, if we don't do this organically and we force it as a top-down solution, you're going to get the same problems that Kelly talks about with gender essentialism and tokenism. But taking that even a step further, you're also going to get the problem of the perception of legitimacy. If you have these quotas, then suddenly anything that comes out of this legislative body is going to be perceived to be legitimate 
because they're now people are quote unquote represented, even though you haven't changed the fundamental power structure that underlies that, which is why that needs to happen organically. But going beyond that, I mean, I think I can provide you two names that sort of disprove most of the government's case, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Like, I, I don't think that just that the gender nature in itself is going to result in the sort of policy changes that you're hoping to achieve regarding taking down the patriarchy, which is why that needs to happen on a more, more organic basis. Then the, the last thing that I want to talk about is the, the idea that there's a lack, and Thomas mentioned this, but it was really going back to a, an argument that Kelly started with about, about a lack of credibility in the status quo. For, for women or non-male actors already. I think that Kelly addresses this when she talks about tokenism, but I, I want to take this even one step further, and that is imagine how the radical right, as I call them, respond to racial quotas in corporate America, something that is not impacting democracy in the, in the, in the direct sense. Now imagine how that group is going to respond to a forced quota based on gender. Suddenly, everything is going to be about legitimacy and gender if, if this is forced on our democratic institutions in a top-down approach, which again goes back to the idea that we need to do this in a more organic nature, building from a society-wide basis and then on up. But I would also piggyback on Kelly's point of information, and that is we also see some of these things already happening on their own. Now, while I do agree there's lots of room to go, there's no proof that quotas are going to be what gets us there versus other potential motivators like grant programs, leadership training, putting more accurate or beneficial portrayals of, of non-male genders in the media. These are all potential things that can help get us to the solution that I think we're all looking at organically without having to risk the backlash that we get from forcing this top-down approach on, an, on a democracy that is already sliding into authoritarianism. I don't think we want to go down that road and crippling our democracy any more than it already is. Thank you, Chris, for that speech. And now, time for another battle, Thomas and Chris's turn to engage in their cross-examination. All right. So you mentioned uh, Lauren Boer and Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, which is actually interesting because, you know, if we're talking about equal representation, at least in America, Republican women are underrepresented. Uh, there are more Democratic women in legislature than there are Republican women. So, I mean, unless unless you want to remove representation for Republicans in your model by by mentioning that, like, I mean, how do you how do you respond to that? We want more Republican representation from from women and marginalized genders. But my point is that unless you're getting rid of Republicans overall, you're always going to have the same ideology flowing through whichever gender is, is being represented, and that just having somebody of the opposite gender is not going to solve the policy harms that were meant, but in fact would do the opposite, give the air of legitimacy to those sorts of political ideologies, saying, oh, well, now we're perfectly well represented, and we still believe we should ban abortion, so that means you can't complain anymore. Well, I mean, it do you do you think that the pro-life movement shouldn't have a voice in politics? No, I think that, I think that they should. The question is, 
how much are we willing to chip away at the foundations of our particular experimental democracy? And when you go look to something like a quota, that is a direct impingement on free will of electing who you want to elect, somebody that represents your interests. So why should somebody be forced to vote for somebody that doesn't represent their interests? Because, I mean, what we've seen is in the status quo, as things stand um, through, like, if you look at it, the history of America, like progress has been forced legislatively. Um, I mean, look at desegregation or gay marriage becoming the law of the land, despite many states having constitutional bans on it. I mean, it's at, at some point the choice yet, for people to vote for that is removed. without having a disproportionate amount of gay people represented in government. The Civil Rights Act passed without having a huge or even proportional representation of of African Americans uh, represented in government. So these things can still happen without having to have a, a hard and fast quota. And I think your point just proves that. Sure. But we've, I mean, look at, look at the timeline. We are well past time for this to be the case, especially in America. We have never had a female head of state. All right. Thank you for that cross-examination. Now moving into the second half of the debate, we will have one more speech from each side and then a last period of cross-examination, after which we will culminate in three-minute summary speeches, starting with the opposition side and concluding with the proposition. For the first of those speeches, I'd like to turn the mic back over to Josh. So the opposition side has suggested to you that our quota system is unnecessary because we are already moving in a more inclusive direction currently, and providing token positions will halt or reverse the process. A, I don't think that the current trend they speak of is true. And beyond that, I think that it has a cap placed on it. And B, I think that this is exactly why the 50% quota is so important to provide protection from some of the backlash that they've listed. So A, you can point to things like Hillary Clinton being the first female presidential nominee in a major political party in the United States or Kamala Harris being our first female vice president. But in each of those instances, they either fell or are falling victim to the very problems that opposition side is pointing to. So manifestations of sexism led to Hillary Clinton losing to Donald Trump, of all people, who was then beaten by Biden. Come on, <laughs> like compare Clinton to Biden. Uh, even if even if you are pro-Trump, doesn't matter. Clinton is objectively a better candidate than Biden, other than the fact that she's missing one piece of anatomy. And speaking of Biden, his own vice president, Harris, has become a victim of her own success. She she wasn't given, arguably, a quota to be a vice president. But now that she is vice president, she is routinely handed losing issues by the administration to insulate Biden from criticism. They send her off to the border to deal with an influx of immigrants, knowing that there is no solution to this problem. This is placing her directly in the path of all of the issues they list on opposition side. Her functioning as the sole female in a male-dominated institution means that she is made to be weak. She is made to fail no matter how strong or competent she is. The same criticism would apply to Chris when he points out quotas in the corporate world. These are non-male individuals having to function in a male-dominated industry. And that's why B, our 50% quota, is so effective. Because now it forces the men to treat their female counterparts as equals. 
finally. They can't be used as, ironically, whipping boys in a system where there's only one out of every four, or we look to Alabama, four out of every 30 happen to be women. As opposed to ignoring pleas for funding on issues like I mentioned in my first speech, men are actually forced to engage. 50% quotas give women the ability to filibuster or block legislation if they're not taken seriously. The status quo organic approach that opposition side wants to bank all of their hopes on is doomed to hit a political glass ceiling, whereas our quota gets to smash it. Bam, good quote. So the next thing that this does, the next thing the 50% quota does is it deals with the other concern coming out of opposition side, which is a lack of representation. They're they're right about everything they said. Not every woman represents every other woman. Uh, A liberal woman does not represent a conservative woman and vice versa. But again, this is why the law of large numbers means that we get more representation on our side. If they're complaining about a lack of conservative women, are you more likely to find a conservative woman in a legislator that has four women or a legislator that has 16? Are you more likely to find it in the 122 countries around the world that have 25% or less women in their governments or a government that's made up of 50% women? So I think on the representation model, this idea that, well, because one woman doesn't represent all women and therefore a quota is a bad thing seems a little bit strange to me and actually seems an argument for why they should be on our side of the debate. So the other two things I want to talk about is one, this idea of pure democracy, and because that's something that's been brought up by opposition side too. And we'd question whether or not our democracy is pure, even in the status quo without quotas. While there isn't explicit limitations on who can run, there are very real and insurmountable ones in place. In our last presidential election, who actually wanted to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? I'll wait. Anyone? (laughs) That's what I thought. Obviously, you can write in whoever you want on the ballot, but when those are the only two that have a real chance of winning, you are most certainly being told who you are allowed to vote for. And what's determining the choices that we have to pick from currently? Nepotism, party politics, and the patriarchy. Was Joe Biden the Democratic nominee because he was the best choice? Get real. He received the nomination because he has put his time into serving the Democratic Party, and now it's his turn. It's his time to cash in, plain and simple. And anyone who didn't want to be ostracized from the party needed to fall in line. And we see that as we see his former rivals drop out and spin 180 degrees, going from trashing him to now supporting him. Most notably, Kamala Harris, conveniently his VP now, Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation, Andrew Yang, who who ran for mayor of New York with Joe Biden's endorsement. This is party politics at its worst, and this is what defines democracy in the United States. That being the status quo, I'm not sure how quota system is any worse than that. And then second of all, we think that there is a quota system in place right now. It's a quota system for males. Opposition wants to complain about our implementation of a quota for non-male politicians while ignoring the fact that there's a de facto quota in existence right now for male politicians. They say that it's a bad thing. We suggest that you would have to be female to be eligible. But in the current system, you most definitely have to be male. There are only three countries in the world where women make up over 50% of the legislative body, and they are, strangely enough, Rwanda, Cuba, and Bolivia. Fun fact. Meanwhile, there's 122 countries with less than 25% representation. So I'll give you another fun fact. There's no country in the world with less than 25% women in the population. So you tell me what's going on there. I'd like to know from opposition side how they can say that having someone guaranteed a spot in government is a bad thing and not acknowledge that for men, having a spot guaranteed is the norm in the status quo. 
why is implementing a quota system in the pursuit of equality and representation worse than nepotism or bigotry limiting our options? Thank you, Josh, for that speech. And now for the last substantive speech of the debate, we have Kelly on the opposition side. So we're made to defend a world of nepotism and bigotry when the proposition here is defending a world that includes both nepotism and bigotry and also a gender quota now. So I think that the harder burden still falls upon the proposition of this debate. I'm going to go through some refutation from what we just heard, which is just a a startling mishearing of a lot of things we've said, and um, talk a little bit about some things that we brought forth as criticisms of this proposition that were not answered by, by uh, by that dynamic duo. So when we're talking about how um, the gender quota will fix the problems that women are experiencing currently in politics, because people have been like absolutely horrible to a lot of the women who are in politics currently, I don't hear that as being an inherent part of this process. I hear that as instead of a hundred women getting death threats, 600 women are getting death threats. I don't think you do anything on the proposition here to change public perception about women at all in the positive for sure, but perhaps in the negative, which we have talked about and I'll continue to talk about. Secondly, Josh says that this forces men to treat women equally. And I don't think that's true. We refuted that earlier and talked about it, I believe in cross-examination, but furthermore, if women can filibuster, so can men, they're only giving them equality of representation and not an overwhelming majority. So there's absolutely no guarantee that anybody would listen to them any more than they currently do. You're hearing a lot of this will happen. This is guaranteed to happen. Oh, won't it be such a great thing for women in the future without any actual justification for proving that idyllic scenario can actually come forward. Josh, would you like to defend that? Right. So explain to me how men pass legislation while ignoring 50% of the voting population in a governing body. So we recognize that right now representation is not ideal. We've accepted that through the entirety of this discussion, but we've also talked about there are currently ways to make it happen and they are improving and historical examples of when representative uh, legislation has come forth without people actually representing those groups being a part of that process. I'll talk about this a little bit more, but I don't think we get any of the guarantees that your side has promised us today. And also apparently more women means there's a more diversity of women at play with differing political ideologies. And I think that's definitely not going to be the case because we don't get that many variations of white men in office in the status quo. And I feel to see how we're going to get a diversity of white women in office after this too. And like Chris talked about, we've got some real winners when we look at women in politics who are there by choice. Um, Let's talk about the democracy. It's already compromised. Um, Yes, let's not make it worse. I just don't see why we need to delve into that argument any further. Chris, I think, did a really wonderful job talking about that. And then the last thing we're supposed to defend is that the quota system is now for males. And we recognize right now that there is an imbalance of gender. We're just saying that this is not the way to rectify it. It is the default. It is an overrepresentation of men in the status quo because there are so many societal factors that are at play, which are not being addressed, and they would not be addressed by a gender quota in politics. We're talking about all of the things, especially that Chris mentioned, feeding right off of everything that Thomas told you, which was people need to see themselves in these positions, or at least in a way that they can visualize themselves 
being in those positions. A child who determines that they want to run for office does not need to actually see 50% of women represented in Congress. They need to see maybe a children's storybook that represents a story of women who were able to achieve things under their own steam and were able to uh, prove the haters wrong or something like that without having to necessarily get a boost from a political quota system. Those are the types of things that make it a more impactful uh, impression upon people who are deciding to engage in a system where we have been told this whole time, you can be anything you want to be. And there is such a thing as a meritocracy. And we know that that is not operationally how things work in the, the West in well, most countries, but this isn't the way to do it because you absolutely destroy any possibility for a, a, a true eventual meritocracy when you implement a quota that undermines the very idea that there is such a thing as merit. So let's talk a little bit about what they didn't talk about. They did not respond to my discussion under the gender essentialism point, not at this time, about allyship, about how when men currently speak up for women, they are doing so completely voluntary and they are doing so to use their privilege and their power to fight against the patriarchy in a way that we don't think will be upheld when we look at the way that the proposition has operationalized gender quotas. We're talking about people who can actually get their foot in the door and create space for women in a way that is organic and pure. The way that we're talking about it when we look at the proposition here is forcing women into spaces where the doors are not yet open and creating a resentment of people like, I don't know, who's a bad guy, Lindsey Graham, I'm just pulling names out of hats right now. They probably don't want this to happen. I don't think they're going to create space or let that space be open too far. But then they also didn't respond to the comparison that people have with corporations and government. When corporations don't look like this and government does look like this, then the myth of where women should be is completely destroyed for anything that the government is trying to put forth today. It is, again, for all of those reasons that we are very proud to oppose this topic. Thank you, Kelly, for that speech. Here we will move into our final section of the debate where Thomas and Chris will engage in one last cross-examination battle before providing summary speeches, starting with Chris on opposition and finishing with Thomas. So picking up with what Kelly just just ended with, how does putting uh, non-male individuals in in these seats of government fundamentally change any other aspects of societal formation as it relates to representation. If we if we hit a 50% or greater quota, Kelly brought up like, you know, talking about how this pertains to like corporations and stuff and how, you know, women and and other marginalized gender identities are are very underrepresented there. And if we are showing that these people are succeeding, that they are making change in in the halls of government, we feel that that is going to translate into um, additional change further down. Why not just make it all non-male individuals? Like, why not just make it 100% then? I fully support that. Okay, cool. I'll address that in a minute. (laughs) So the question then that directly relates to that is, how do you account for the the things that Kelly really delves into about allyism, tokenism, and those sorts of things being a backlash 
in the rest of society for what's happening in that governing body. Allies are are important. They are they are they are hugely important, but they're they're just a small piece of the picture. Like an you know, an ally alone isn't going to is maybe going to trouble, you know, current narratives about, you know, social situations, but isn't going to enact systemic change by themselves. So we don't feel that a few lone men who are betraying the patriarchy are going to overthrow it. Looking at your side, something that that came across in in both of your speeches is that there's this acceptance of the fact that like women and marginalized identities have been gatekept out of politics and out of this realm. I mean, how do you how do you address that in in your opposition? Like how do you because we see that as a negative and something that we want to overcome through our plan? Well, first of all, I would say that apparently not everybody does view that as a negative. So uh, I'm not saying that I ascribe to this this philosophy, but uh, there's a an argument out there that women who make up slightly over 50% of the voting population have not made this a big enough issue to make gender a primary qualifying criteria for their next political candidate. And it and the only reason we have Kamala Harris as a vice president right now is because. Joe Biden said that's where the direction he was going to go with a VP pick. But the voters as a whole have not made that a priority. So why why is it up to us to make their priorities for them? Because the harms inherent in the status quo are literally diminishing the quality of life for people who aren't men. But the harms are happening to these people who apparently don't care enough to vote for what you say is in their interest. Thank you for that battle. And all right, Chris, you can now provide the final summary for your side of the debate. So I think the the difficult uh, stance that the proposition has put themselves in is that they want systemic change without changing the system, Uh, because the system is much more than just a a few uh, individuals at the top in our elected federal government. It goes. It is much, much broader than that. And the fact is, their proposal doesn't change the underlying foundation. So, in in summary, what I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up three points. One, what is the problem? Two, does this proposal solve the problem? And three, would there be other consequences that make it not worthwhile? So, first, what is the problem? We agree, uh, Kelly and I on a philosophical level with the proposition that there's probably a lot of other things that could be done to provide more gender equal policy proposals. However, as I got to in cross-examination just a minute ago, this isn't necessarily the priority for everyone. And in fact, women who make up 50% or more of the voting population have not uh, made this a priority in the places where they voted. So it's it seems very paternalistic for us to impose this top-down model on the federal government in this nature. Second, and then the other issue related to this particular proposal, again, it doesn't change the underlying system, whereas there are other options that both Thomas and I talked about in our speeches to help uh, foment societal change, which is necessary to get to where I think both the proposition and opposition ultimately want to get to with our policy proposals. But then finally, would this policy proposal have other consequences that would be detrimental? That's obviously what Kelly and I have been putting forward, especially with the uh, 
almost subconscious levels of gender essentialism that this this re-entrenches, as well as tokenism, uh, the idea that the, you're only there, meaning uh, non-male uh, individuals in this case, you're only there because the law put you there, not because you earned it, which could have far more detrimental impacts on, on women in years to come than the current system, which allows them to run whenever they want to, but doesn't force any sort of particular um, uh, percentage or quota. The other um, significant consequence is that once you get a, a pure 50% quota, if that is indeed what we're looking at, it, it doesn't get take away the fundamental underlying power structures that Kelly and I both talked about in terms of the political power structure that's still going to be putting them in place. It doesn't automatically change the political philosophies of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, but it does now give them a blanket to put over everything and say, well, things were equal when we voted for it. So anything that comes out of this process must be inherently legitimate when that's not, not necessarily the case. And for those reasons, we uh, continue to oppose this motion. Thank you for the summary speech. And for the final thoughts on this topic, we have the proposition summary speech from Thomas. Okay, so I'd like to kind of address this thread of tokenism that uh, comes up throughout the uh, opposition side. And we feel we are willing to accept the harm, the initial short-term harm of being seen as tokenistic because we feel that that will lead to actual respect and representation because it's getting people in through the door. Right now, I, I mentioned gatekeeping earlier, and what we want to do is, is remove that gatekeeping that is keeping people of marginalized genders out of the halls of power in U.S. and, and also globally. So we feel that that having this lack of representation is is an inherent harm and has a trickle-down effect that impacts everybody living in a society that is governed that way. Um, and we see that men in the status quo are not willing to give up their power and, in fact, like have actively, throughout history, worked to disenfranchise women and other marginalized identities from, from voting, from participating in politics, and in honestly, in, in every aspect of their life. I mean, sexism has been enshrined in, in almost every culture globally. And so what we see is this, this is an opportunity to bust open those gates and allow people the chance to prove themselves, which they are currently being denied. And as to voters not being interested in this, I mean, look at look at the people who are who are running for these positions. It's it's mostly men because people who are women and and non-binary folks and other marginalized genders don't have the institutional support, at least in the US, to to run for positions. A candidacy is incredibly expensive and and time consuming and honestly like uh, an endeavor built around connections and like institutional power um and sure there are some like dark horses that break into politics that way but like by and large people who are who are candidates for elected office have institutional support that we just don't see being offered in the status quo so for that reason we feel that quotas are, are a way that enable us to increase representation in in a way that Honestly, like the harms that our plan does to democracy, as Josh pointed out, is is no worse than our current democratic model. It's not even a lesser of two evils. It's just the flip side of the coin. Um, because we we live in America with the illusion of free choice, with the illusion of democracy. And so we're just we're just 
giving lie to that illusion and saying like, yeah, you actually, you don't have a choice in this. This is what we're doing. And, and this is the, the way that we are going to enact social change because we feel that having men solely in charge of, of our governance is innately harmful to women and it can no longer be allowed to continue. So our model solves for that and allows for real social change that's going to have an impact not only on government, but also on the lives of everybody living under that government. And so for that reason, we are proud to propose. And that, folks, is a wrap. I'd like to thank all the speakers for their thoughts and intriguing arguments. I had a great time listening and analyzing, and hopefully y'all did as well. If you'd like to continue this debate, or let us know who you think won, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at IndubitablyPod. Thanks for listening, and see y'all next time.